It is impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's immorality. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly. Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. End quote. Those words were written by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. He wrote a comprehensive eyewitness account of the Jewish revolt that went from 66 to AD 70. And the fall of Jerusalem, his book was first published in 75 when the facts of the, this Holocaust were still vividly in the minds of many. The war that broke out in 66 between Rome and the Jewish people was simply an intensified continuation of hostilities that had been brewing for years. Jerusalem, the last Jewish stronghold, was the focus of Rome's most brutal rage. Many, including a criminal element, fled there for safety. The city was without law and order. There was so much death that burial became impossible. Bodies were literally everywhere. The siege was so terrible that people were starving and many gave into cannibalism that scandalized the ancient world. The siege was so bad that people were apparently eating from the public sewers, cattle and pigeon dung, hay, clothing, and things that scavenger dogs would not dare to touch. Consider this historical event. Josephus pleaded with the Roman military leader Titus to save the city. In fact, Titus used him to negotiate with the Jews, asking them to surrender while the Romans besieged the city. Josephus also recorded the fact that there were numerous false prophets during that time who misled the people and contributed further to their demise. Just one problem after another. Quote, the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. Both of those were, wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. Greatest of all those in his time. Accordingly, it appears to me, he says, that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were, end quote. I'm, not, I'm barely scratching at some of the things he records that happened. But here's the question. If, if you lived back then and you had been told that this was going to happen, how could you have avoided it? What would you have done to avoid this disaster that was looming over Jerusalem if you had lived then? We like to think we would have done better, and maybe we would have. But what would you think of the one who told that this was going to go down just like this? How would you regard him? Would the rest of his words then begin to trouble you about yourself, about life in general, about the end? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, page 901 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. Hope you have your text open in front of you. As, I, as you're turning there, I'm going to give a little background. Mark, Mark, I'm going to go a little bit longer on this this morning just to kind of have some build up here. I was going to try to do all of chapter 13 in one sermon. And then Ray Noble said to me, before I told him I was going to do this, he said, you know, a lot of guys, you know, they just kind of go over it in one sermon. I just kind of sank down. So I'm going to do it in two sermons. You can thank Ray for this. Ray actually probably did me a favor. Uh, Mark wrote this gospel to persuade readers to entrust their lives to Jesus because Jesus is the promised salvation of God, of sinners from sin and death. And he gives us scene after scene how Jesus has the power, how Jesus has the authority and the righteousness to save. Where Jesus is in the text is where the kingdom is. He came not to destroy Rome, but to overthrow spiritual powers greater than Rome and sin, which has enslaved God's people. And he does this through his person and work 
as truly God and truly man. Only Jesus in his perfect life of righteousness as a man could earn the merits of eternal life and die in our place. Only Jesus being truly God was the perfect sacrifice and could endure God's wrath and be raised from the dead. Who can save us from God? God, Jesus, God's one and only son. And so Jesus's first appearance revealed his humble service to to the to ungrateful humanity. Many did not want this. The Jews of that day wanted him to first appear not as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but as the lion to destroy Rome and their occupation of Jerusalem. When Jesus declared that Jerusalem and her gaudy, huge, and godless temple were doomed, many, including the disciples, were baffled. They couldn't imagine such destruction. I mean, this was no ordinary edifice. Herod's temple was magnificent. How could this be, Jesus? But, you know, the New Testament regularly reveals that Jesus is the true temple of God, where forgiveness takes place, where prayer is heard. He is Emmanuel. He is our great high priest. John the Baptist bypassed the temple. He gave it no nod. Jesus didn't either. He pronounced its looming destruction multiple times and pronounced a curse upon it. Jesus has just told the disciples these things. That again in Mark 13, verses 1 and 2, where we left off last Sunday. Now let's pick up now here in verse 3. Hear now God's holy word. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out, no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and and as a father, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those days will be of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord has, had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. This is God's word. Amen. Well, this will be an easy passage, right, this morning? Okay, we'll, we'll do the, uh, Lord willing, I'll do the best I can. This passage is often called the Olivet Discourse. Note, it is not the Olivet Discourse, okay? Jesus gives some of the end of days, but not all of it. Therefore, this passage allows for good, gracious discussion about end-time debates among believers because we all ache. We all ache with, come, Lord Jesus, come in our hearts. Amen. This passage is immensely practical to sober us and to urge us to live boldly for King Jesus. My good friend Nick Roark said this is not a cryptic calendar for figuring out a timetable, but a discipleship to-do list. Mark 13, as a chapter contains 19 commands. And once again, the disciples confuse matters. Shocking. They're confused. 
Literally, they just walked after Jesus has pronounced all this judgment. They're walking out. Look at this building. Look at this. Look, can you, Jesus, look, right? They're just, just can't read the room. And so they're confused again. Their confusion is no surprise that they are asking the question they're asking and the way they're asking it. They are, uh, they equate the destruction of Jerusalem with the coming of the new age under Messiah. They see him as the same thing. They don't understand the cross still, let alone the church age when the gospel will march on in a fallen world. So, of course, there's confusion here. The entire chapter is marked by Jesus preparing them and subsequent readers here to be on guard spiritually. So if there's a main takeaway here is to be on guard, church. Don't be comfortable. Stay awake. And alert because many are misled by their own senses. What the disciples of every age should do is to trust in God's word. Jesus assures them of false teachers and ongoing spiritual warfare that will play out before them. They're not to be distracted by things like wars, disasters, and persecution. They are to stay fixed on Christ and fixed on his word. Even when tribulation appears to be at the peak, they are to keep watch, lest they drift away. It's not in my manuscript, but you know what? Haven't we seen, just just through a hint of tribulation in our own country, just the, the pandemic, the illness, whatever it was, many did not hold fast. Many have never come back. It doesn't take much to shake up an assembly. Before Jesus tells them about his second coming, he prepares them for their current day so that they may endure with faithfulness and so that we, the reader, would understand how we too can endure. Here's the central point I want to preach this morning. By God's grace, I think it's clear from this text. Jesus promised tribulation. Jesus promised tribulation. Therefore, by grace, therefore, by grace, prepare to endure in faith and obedience. Prepare to endure in faith and and obedience. Number one, watch out for deception. Number one, watch out for deception, verses three through eight. Often we are, when we are young, we don't want to hear a parent say this phrase, hey, hey, be careful. You ever see a child, I got it, I got it. You know, we were all like that. You know, watch out. We feel very confident in our abilities. Not to our surprise, the disciples are still not seeing things well, and we're just like them in so many ways. First supplement here is be clear about what is not the end. Be clear about what is not the end. Verse 3 shows how the core of the disciples follows up with Jesus. You see that, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And that's what good disciples do, by the way. They follow up with Jesus. They keep going after more. All right? For clarification, verse 4, they ask two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they wanted some sure sign by which they might know that the destruction of the temple was about to occur occur, and, and that the end of the age was approaching. To them, they could not separate the two. And he says, fellas, this is not the case. Verse 8, he reminds us that these troubles coming their way are but the birth pains. Just birth, just the birth pains. Note that both of their questions included, both of their questions included the phrase, these words, these things. The repetition for the call to watch out at the beginning of verse 13, uh, uh, at the beginning of Mark 13, the call to watch out again in the middle of Mark 13, and then the call to watch out again at the end of Mark, Mark 13 reveals that these things are characteristic of of the birth pains of this age, the last days between the first and second coming of Christ. These things will be characteristic. And so Jesus used the the same term when he uttered the crucial statement recorded in there in verse 30, that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So you need to note that in their mind, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age are the same event. They're not. And their view of the world centered around, as you can imagine, around that building. Their view of their world centered around that city, around that building. That was as big as it got. 
And hence, this is why Jesus spends time making sure that they know that they are not the same thing. So friends, let's gleam some wisdom here. Our world, our age, our great cities, they're big to us, but they're small to an infinite God. Church, let's not forget the, the great cloud of witnesses who preceded us in the faith. Our time is not the only time. And let's not forget the many who come behind us if the Lord allows. Our world and what matters right now will likely be forgotten in a few decades. So let's remember that the age, like that age, like every age since Jesus arrived, is part of the last days. They seem long to us, but to God, a thousand years is like a what? A day. He's not limited to time and space like we are. Verse 5, we see a clear, repeated command in the passage. Watch out. That means to pay attention. To what? First thing he talks about is deceivers. Look at the text. Instead of identifying a sign, they ask for a sign. What's Jesus say? Hang on, I'm going to take you. Let me get you on the right track first before I tell you about the sign you're looking for. And then I'm going to correct your view of my at the end. The first thing he, though, he does before talking about signs, he says, you need to look out. Hey, Sparky, watch out. You're at, like, let's start here. You knuckleheads are prone to get misled. Don't be deceived. He first and foremost exhorts the disciples, first thing is to spiritual preparedness in order to stand firm through the many trials coming their way. I mean, doesn't that, isn't that how we get the priorities changed? Give me this sign, give me this, give me this. And what we really need to do is, hey, you need to focus on do not be deceived. Instead of being focused on daily faithfulness, obeying Jesus, we can be misled by the winds of the day. Don't be misled by the winds of the day, by the the popular sayings of the day. You know, we can become quite fickle. And back then, can you imagine if they had had Facebook, if they had had CNN or Fox and every other media? I mean, what in the world? People would be easily deceived by the worries of today so much so they are distracted from Jesus and start following other messiahs other leadership above Christ's word. And so verse 6, he tells them, many will come in the name of Jesus, saying that they are Jesus, and deceive many. That's how blind humanity is. Reject the one true God and quickly accept a false teacher. The New Testament gives specific examples of this in Acts, how this happened, how this took place, along with historians that tell us that many false messiahs appeared before the destruction of the temple. At various times, individuals claiming to be God's agent of deliverance gained prominence. Of course, people wanted to hear about that. Rome and them were in conflict. People were afraid. This guy says he can protect us. You can put it together. And since there will be a a, a ceaseless parade of of imposters and, and glory hounds, their appearance cannot be the sign of the end. Just because these things are happening, again, that's not the sign of the end. Birth pains. The disciples must strengthen themselves to see through these imposters and not be caught up in the excited delusions of the crowd. So the mark of false messiahs is that they exalt themselves to the place of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, have come. There is a capital A Antichrist who's still to come, but prior to his arrival... This age is marked by Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of lawlessness who deny Jesus and who expect people to follow them like they are God and their, their word is infallible. 1 John 4.1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if you want to be watchful, stop watching the news as if it's on par with the scriptures. I'm not saying to stop watching the news, but it ain't God's word. Amen? Tucker Carlson is not Jesus. Tom Brokaw, he's not even doing it anymore. It's not Jesus. Pick your anchor. I don't even know what Brokaw's doing now. Anyway, let's keep moving. Pick your anchor, whoever it may be. They're not Jesus. They're not his word. Be watchful by, by being... Uh, uh, another way you could be watchful is by being part of a faithful gospel-preaching church where the word is faithfully preached and the commands of Christ are proclaimed. Don't be discipled by the internet. It is a cruel discipler. Where you gather the voices that confirm your unchallenged views. 
Start being discipled by the shepherds God has raised up in his providence in your own church. Second sub-point. Be surprised by times of peace. Be surprised by times of peace. Look at the next section. You're going through verses 7 and 8. Jesus warns about international commotions and natural disasters are all part of the birth pains. These events are typical of human history and should not be taken as marking the end. This is part of the birth pains. The world's in conflict. No surprise. Verse 8, these things must take place. Look what he says. But it is not yet the end. Birth pains. They're not a sign of the end or even that the end is necessarily near. And so Jesus' warning seeks to correct the proclivity to read current events and disasters as heralds of the end. When one stands in the middle of history, one can easily misjudge the importance of events on God's scale. It may be big in our time, important to our timetable. It may not be. We've got to think about his perspective, his rule, his reign. In verse 7, Jesus assures his disciples that all this mayhem is not out of the sovereign control of God. Everything is controlled by the Lord. He knows all things because he has decreed all things. And so birth pains, the Apostle Paul uses that same term in a similar way in Romans 8.22. Speaking of our fallen world, we know that the whole creation has been grown in together with labor pains until now. So we get some helpful, even, even, even more help there from the epistles. Jesus, Paul, and here in Mark's account are upholding the doctrine of the fall and the curse of sin upon the world. Yeah. Why is everything ter- why does all the good things seem to die and all the bad things seem to grow? The doctrine of the fall. Sin is real. Why did I lose my hair? I'm dying. Sin happened. I'm getting older. You're getting older. This world is under the curse. Yeah, we believe in climate change. Sin exists. But exist, those things happen under the decree of God. We don't need to, yeah, we, we, we follow his plan. We follow his word. This period of, of waiting is metaphorically described as groaning, as in the pains of childbirth that Paul used. So Jesus says to all, do not long for mere times of peace in this current state. Look to the new heavens and the new earth. So the residual effects of humanity's fall should provoke eager longing for the consummation of the new age. Oh, disciples, you're looking for this Jerusalem to be a little bit better. Jesus is thinking total remaking of all things, all things made new. So I love that Jesus didn't sugarcoat this, you know. And we know Jesus was many times a very gentle teacher. But he just, I love when Jesus just gets point blank and frank with us, right? The badness will continue and must continue he teaches here according to God's plan. So watch out for deception. You're going to be tempted to give in to, to deceptions. There are deceptions and dangers and disturbances, but we're not to let those throw us off of our focus on Jesus Christ. Our world can be very frightening. Many parents are terrified right now of putting their kid back into school. People are scared right now of a number of illnesses. There's a number of things of, of war breaking out. We could just list it. on Our world is a very frightening place. Let us not be more anxious, friends, over pandemics, shortages, wars, shootings, and the like to the point we're not fearing God, revering the one who can cast both body and soul into judgment. He is worthy of our godly anxiety, our righteous concern. What does God want me to do? How can I worship and obey him? Do, do not be deceived, deceived that this age is as good as it gets. Heaven help us. <laughs> or that this life is all about nothingness. Or that some political figure can change things. Or that a Facebook rant will cure the hardness of hearts. It won't. It won't do it. Don't be deceived by the false promises of health wealth teachers. Don't be deceived by the ideologies that promise heaven on earth if you just Follow them and their path to sexual freedom and self-expression and self-exaltation, which is the spirit of our day. Don't let your family be discipled by the theology of a pagan culture through streaming services, friends. Be on guard. Be discerning parents. Be discerning singles. Be discerning Christian. Deception is real. Jesus is the truth. 
Jesus promised tribulation. Therefore, by grace, prepare to endure in faith and obedience. Number two, be on guard for persecution. Be on guard for persecution, verses 9 through 13. Look at your Bible with me. Verse 9 gives the command again, but even more specific, but you be on your guard. <laughs> Jesus, when are these things going to happen? What's the sign? Be on guard, big guy. And here we see more of the birth pains, namely persecution. First subpoint is expect hostility. Expect hostility. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. You know, the world likes to throw out that term hate a lot. Oh, that's hate, that's hate. You know who they really hate? Christ. And they hate God and they hate those who follow Christ. Jesus prophesied that widespread hatred against the disciples would be another sign of the impending destruction of the temple, of Jerusalem. And this would also carry on past it as well. And it will only end when Jesus returns. I mean, doesn't this portion of the prophecy read like an overview, overview of Acts? Look at Jesus, what he's telling them is going to happen to them and to the church. It reads like an overview of the book of Acts, the work of the Spirit. First century persecution against the church was awful. Many were made into human torches to illumine Nero's gardens. Many were fed to the lions in the arena and meeting other horrible ends. I recently read that in the 20th century that it could be, it could be possible that more Christians were martyred for their faith in Christ than all the previous centuries combined. Well, that doesn't make top-tier news, does it? The disciples, by grace, accepted this attitude of the world and took it in stride, and many, by the Spirit today, do the same. So Jesus is shifting their thinking and ours. Unpopularity and hatred from the world is not a sign to, that we need to toss our Bibles. Oh no, my Christianity is not popular my friends aren't loving me. This world's not loving me. I need to toss it out. No, absolutely not. If you think Christianity, let, let, let's do, I want to be careful and balanced here. If you think Christianity is about being obnoxious, you're wrong. Okay, that's too far. We, we're not, that's not the kind of witness we're to be. But if you think it's about earthly popularity and never offending, well, you're off as well there too. We can be off either, in either extreme. Like we're, we're witnessing an arrogance and we're going to win. We're going to pin them down with this apologetic argument we got. And we forget, oh, yeah, it's not me who can turn the heart. It's not me who can give new life. The Spirit works through the Word. But if we're only, if we, you know, if we're never offending anybody, that's a good thing. It, I mean, we're put on notice here. A lot of us need to stop pursuing comforts and start talking more. Maybe it's in increments more, a little bit more about Jesus. What was your weekend like? Well, let me tell you, you know. Hey, um, uh, I'm really troubled by this thing going on. Let me tell you what, I'm troubled too, but I'm so thankful for, for, that God spoke, has spoken in his word. Just ways we can just plant seeds and read, share a portion of scripture and see if they'll come back and get a little bit more. Verses 12 and 13 re reveals even family betrayal. I don't know about you guys, but... I think that I, I can think of family members, not direct, but related ones right now. If the time was right, it was difficult, they would sell me and my family out in a heartbeat. How about, do you have any family members like that? Would sell you out for the faith? You know, there are many who do. This is so painful. Jesus warns that families will split because of the gospel. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, Jesus said, but rather the sword, division. Some of us are estranged from family because we follow Jesus. And he tells them in exaggerated terms to make the point clear in verse 13. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. How painful to be betrayed by friends, betrayed by your parents, betrayed by a brother or betrayed by a sister because of Christ. Simply put, there were traitors to the faith in the first century just as Jesus warned them that there would be. Next up point, expect God's help. Expect God's help. Verse 11, Jesus tells them not to worry. 
You see that? So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry. That's a funny statement. When you're arrested, when you're persecuted, don't worry. You get how unnatural that feels? Yeah. Because it's natural for us to worry, to give in to those things. And he wants us to put our trust in him. Don't be worried. How are they not to worry about being his witnesses in hostile territories? Look at the text. The answer is the aid is given by the Holy Spirit. It's not what we see in the book. Is this not, friends, what we see in the book of Acts? How are we to understand verse 10? And it's necessary that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Remember, Jesus does not start out answering what the sign will be for the destruction of the temple or Jerusalem. He starts off by telling them about the age in which they will minister. Part of that ministry is preaching Christ. In the parallel text in Matthew 24, verse 14, says this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus seems to be saying here, instead of looking for signs of the end, get busy and spread the good news. All nations must hear about Jesus. Go make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Friends, isn't it easiest isn't it easy for us to be just real insular right now? It's comfortable in the church most of the time. Sometimes it can get uncomfortable. But it feels safe. The world is growing more hostile to our beliefs. Uh, I mean, they call our view of pregnancy, marriage, and family, and goodness a threat, a dangerous threat to society. You know, some of you have served in crisis pregnancy centers. The world somehow sees you as a threat because you want to preserve life. You're a threat because you don't want to see children groomed in elementary school into perverse sexuality and transgenderism. Satan tempts us to be silent. Persecution is not to derail us, though, friends, from sharing Christ. It's the time to get up and go more and share Jesus and live Christ. Friends, don't you know we have a mission to tell people about Jesus? Who's on your heart right now that you want to share Christ with? Don't you know what Jesus is saying? The end is coming. You've got work to do. The gates of hell, friends, fear a spirit-empowered church. I remember Matt reading uh, that passage in Acts about those who were trying to use the name of Jesus. Of course, the evil spirit speaks back. I know Jesus and Paul. I don't know you. And they, they get beat up, right? The gates of hell fear a spirit-empowered church. The gates of hell cannot prevail. They don't fear a church consumed with worldly priorities who neglect faithfulness. Some of you today, you remember the days when you used to love to plant seeds of the word with others and pray over them? You used to be the first to church on Sunday. You used to be eager to help people get to church. You used to give above the tithe to help support gospel work. But somehow you've grown cold. And the displeasure of the crowd is snuffing out your fire. Turn from that. Seek the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek his help to stand and live for Jesus. Let's get right with God today by preparing, not for people's displeasure, but for the service of our King. The end is coming, that's for sure. Either we'll die or Jesus will return. Nevertheless, an end is coming. Next sub-point here in point two, determine to endure. Determine to endure. Finally, Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is not setting forth a doctrine of salvation by works. He's emphasizing that genuine faith will issue in Christian living that, that will will endure trial and persecution. A good commentary on this verse, on verse 13, is 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Those who stand firm through persecution and even martyrdom are saved, but not because of their faithfulness, because of the grace afforded to them in Christ by the Spirit to stand. It's simply the proof that your standing is proof that you've been given true faith in Christ. 
Pray for that, friends. Pray for that. You know, you could be saved today and live a life that ends in holding fast to Jesus if you turn from your rebellion. That's what sin is. That's doing what we want rather than what God wants. Sin is rebellion against God if you turn from that and say, God, I'm a sinner. I believe your son lived and died for me at Cal- lived and died for me and paid for my sins at Calvary and rose from the dead on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Have mercy on me. If you cry out to God for help, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ like that, you'll be saved, the Bible says. You could be saved and forgiven today if you turn. Turn from yourself and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus promised tribulation, therefore by grace, prepare to endure in faith and obedience. Number three, believe Jesus' words. Believe Jesus' words. 14 through 23. I'm going to focus on verses 14 through 23. Remember the question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And what is the sign that will indicate its nearness? So verses 14 through 23, Jesus now turns to focus especially on the events associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. This section should instill in the reader how serious we are to take our Savior's word. First sub-point, Jesus' predictions were fulfilled. Jesus' predictions were fulfilled. When should the Christian, Christians in Jerusalem flee? The sign is given in verse 14. This verse is one of the most difficult in Mark's, gospels, in Mark's gospel, if not the entire New Testament. But let's start with some textual clues for help here. We must remember Jesus is answering their question. We saw that, right? The disciples asked a quest, two questions. He's answering the question of the disciples concerning, quote, these things, this temple, these stones that you see, all of which would occur in the lifetime, verse 30, of this generation, verse 30. And the key phrase is literally rendered the abomination that causes desolation. It's an expression derived from the book of Daniel where it's used four times. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 24, verse 15, he explicitly identifies this phrase originating with that book. So I'm not making a stretch there. The first word of the phrase abomination suggests something repugnant, while the second desolation suggests that because of the abomination, the temple is left deserted, desolate, destroyed. Some see that the abomination of desolation or cause of desolation were zealots of that day who murdered people in the temple as an act of abomination. That's one view. Some think it was the murder committed by the Edomians or uh, Edomites who evaded and murdered people in the temple. Uh, Some think it was the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders that was the referenced abomination. Some see this prophecy as fulfilled in the end time by the capital A Antichrist, citing Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the Antichrist. Uh, seems to be derived there. But I want to note, Paul would pick up on this imagery for sure to note an even greater abomination by the man of lawlessness in the people of God, the Antichrist who seeks to lead confessing believers into apostasy. But let's narrow in on this context. What was this particular repugnant event? First of all, let me note the temple was already dead to God. It was a fruitless hideout for thieves who thought that it kept them safe from harm. It was their trap now. Uh, Daniel foretold in his day that the temple, the temple during that time, one prior to this one, would be destroyed in Jerusalem. And 200 years later, Jesus uses the same phrasing to point to a greater repugnant event. Jesus is like this. Guys, remember what Daniel predicted would happen and what came true of the temple before? Well, it's going to happen again. It's going to be worse. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, it's going to be worse. And the original prediction of the earlier temple's destruction in Daniel concerned the desecration of Jerusalem uh, temple by Antiochus uh, Epiphanes in 168 B.C. That came true, as Daniel said. This guy, who like all Antichrists back in, that Daniel was talking about, called himself Theos Epiphanes, Manifest God. That's what he called himself. That's interesting. Uh, uh, his, enemy, his enemies mockingly called him Epimenes, Insane One. 
It was kind of like manifest God. No, no, no. Manifest nut job is what they were calling him. When this guy took Jerusalem, he, he set up an altar uh, to Zeus in the temple and he sacrificed a pig there. He also put public brothels in the temple courts. He was offensive in every way. He was an abomination. Looking at Daniel's prediction and what followed, and then of Luke's account of this same text here, which says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Why does Luke not quote Daniel as exact or Mark or as Mark and Matthew? Well, likely because the terminology abomination of desolation would have been confusing to his largely Gentile audience, prompting Luke to graphically identify precisely what Jesus had in mind. The abomination that brings desolation to, to, to Jerusalem and its temple, in the words of Luke, is the invading army, the army under the leadership of Titus that Josephus wrote about. The Jews refused to surrender, and in time, Josephus' worst fears were realized. He believed that Titus' conquest and destruction of the temple, uh, he, and he saw it and he wrote about it, uh, that what happened in AD 70. So when you combine these accounts, you can see how each gospel writer records how Jesus was preparing Christians to flee out of Jerusalem when they saw the invasion on the horizon. Get out! That's your sign. When, while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the idolatrous representations of Caesar and Rome and the Roman eagle on the standards would have been constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people, and they put them in there loud and proud. So the abomination of desolation involves the destruction of Jerusalem, beginning with several encirclings by Cestius, Vespasian, Simon, and Titus. And it culminates in a final abominable act within the temple itself. And so this is the view I find most likely and ties closely with the context and with Luke's description. So Jesus uses this horrific event in Israel's past what Daniel talked about would come in 168 to signal and predict for them because that's to expect a similar similar one in the future. That look at the phrase there in in verse 14, let the reader understand. Jesus is using Daniel's language to say that invasion and that situation was horrible and terrible and destructive and abominable. Get ready. Expect something like that but worse and now he goes on to talk about it. He prepared them for the destruction so that they might, what? Get out and flee. It's interesting. We talked about when people, this morning we sang, where shall I be? And people to the mountains flee. Here in the text, they were to flee, and those who got there were safe. Friends, there's a judgment coming that there's nowhere to flee. The mountains won't cover you. It won't protect you at all. When Jesus comes again. Here, just as Jesus said, the temple in Jerusalem would be torn apart, destroyed. And when the armies march against the city, the disciples are to recognize that this is the sign. Get out. They're coming. Instead of flocking to the city, that's in anticipation of a dramatic messianic victory, they must run for their lives. Think about this advice that Jesus is giving them. It was contrary to conventional wisdom in the ancient world. In times of invasion, people fled not to the mountains, but to the walled cities, which were regarded as the safest places. Jesus says, you'll find no safety there. The safety was not found in the man-made cities. Safety was found in trusting Christ's word. But notice also, next sub-point here, Jesus' descriptions are spot on. Jesus' descriptions are spot on. Verse 19 here is the origin of the term great tribulation, which many evangelicals foresee happening at the end of time. However, when we consider this teaching in context, it seemed clear Jesus was speaking of events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. He said it would be a terrible time, the worst time in history. Well, I don't think this verse requires you know, my view here, by the way, because the rest of the New Testament prior to the second coming, you can see an increase in persecution and spirit of Antichrist. But note the phrase there in verse 19. People get hung up on this phrase a lot. The kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and, will, and never will be again. 
Sometimes this gets overread. They miss the fact this was a common phrase used in the Old Testament. I could give you several from Exodus and other Old Testament texts. Let me give you two from 2 Kings. 2 Kings 18.5, he, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So there was none, listen to the phrase, none like him among all the kingdoms, kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So it says that about Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. There was none like him among all kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. 2 Kings 23-25, speaking of uh, Josiah, before him there was no king like him. <laughs> this, is la- this is after. Who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him ever arise after him. That's just one example from the Old Testament how that phrasing is used. Is this a contradiction in 2 Kings? Not at all. There are, not, there are no contradictions in the Bible. The phraseology is hyperbolic, emphasizing complete devotion to the Lord and his law there in 2 Kings. And that phrase here, again, is used to employ, to denote universal radical destruction in verse 19. So in this context, people would be so reduced, so starved and crazed that cannibalization, the record shows, included children. No wonder he said, woe to the pregnant mothers here in the text. This place would be a place of horror like no other, according to, uh, to, to Christ's word, and then revealed also in historical records. The unmatched horrors would include the crucifixion of 500 Jews a day. They were running out of, they were trying to find wood to keep it going. It was horrid. His, Jesus' is, uh, descriptions are spot on. But notice here also, as, we, as he rounds out this section, beginning in verse 20, last subpoint: God superintends all things. Verse 20, if God had not determined that the time of most difficulty would be short for the sake of his elect, his chosen people, then some of them might not survive. Friends, the Lord holds us in his hands. His elect, according to scripture, are recipients of mercy we can't fully comprehend it. God in love chose to pour out mercy on some. He preserved by his sovereign choice a remnant. And you know what? When you read the historical records of what befell Jerusalem, you don't read, it, you don't read of any believers who died in the event. If they did, they were few. So somebody got the word out. The disciples got got to it, and the Christians got out. They were rescued. Jesus brings up deceptions and deceivers one more time here at the end. Again in verses 21 and 22, but they are to watch out. Verse 23, Jesus has answered their question pertaining to Jerusalem, and next he will correct their questions about the second coming, and you'll have to come back next Sunday, and we'll talk about that. So we can see here in the passage, he truly prepares them for what's happening uh, through the time between now, at least now in a general way, between the second coming, trials, tribulations, difficulties. He prepares them specifically what's coming. You remember Daniel, what he said? You remember the invasion and the desecration? Well, look out. When you see this coming, get out. He prepares them for that. Next, he's about to lean, lean into chapter, uh, here in chapter 13. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, he's going to go into uh, the future. So we'll go pick up there, Lord willing, next Sunday. Let me close this out because I've, I'm, I've been talking 90 to nothing, and uh, it's getting a little dry. Friends, Jesus' warnings and predictions were legit. And regardless of your view of, of Mark 13, His predictions were specifically fulfilled, we know, in the horrors that happened in Jerusalem. It was terrible. It truly was woe to those who who were left there, who stayed behind and listened to false teaching, who stayed behind and sought to find safety in Jerusalem. If the disciples should take these warnings to heart in their time, and if the disciples and the reader, let the reader understand that, that trials and tribulations, are, as Jesus foretold, 
shouldn't we all take every warning Jesus ever gave to heart? Yeah, we should. Shouldn't we be those who obey his word? Shouldn't we be those who pursue what it means to persevere in a fallen world? Are you tossed to and fro by bad news? Do you feel overwhelmed in anxiety as you read about every new report that comes out about the terrible things that happen all over the world? Are you tempted to listen to teaching that tickles your ears and provides just a short-term you know, comfort in this terrible world? Oh, friends, look to what Jesus is saying here. Remember birth pains. Remember to stay fixed and endure to the end. Shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be those church who are guarding ourselves from deception and giving in to fear by holding to Jesus' word? His word is trustworthy. Look how specific he was back then. Look how true he is today. Let's pray. Lord, we long for your coming again. But we need grace. We need grace to endure. Grace to be despised. Grace to hold fast when we're afraid of trial after trial and war after war and difficulty after difficulty. We pray for the grace to take the gospel to the nations or to take the gospel to our homes, to our neighbors, and to our co-workers in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help our words, Lord. Fill us with your word. It calls us to live in the fear of God. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.